0: Welcome to So-and-So, brought to you by Bernina, Made to Create. I'm Meg Goodman, and you're about to enjoy a casual conversation with a special member of the Sewist and Quilting community. A conversation about how they got started, what inspires them, what excites them, and their connection to this community. Our guest today is Katherine Stevenson, who is the owner and name behind Katherine Stevenson Couture for 35 years. She's a business owner, entrepreneur, educator, mentor, and friend. A native of Portland, Oregon, she spent her high school and college years in Madison, Wisconsin, where she received her BA in textiles and clothing in 1971 from the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Although educated in a system that expected their graduates to go into the ready to wear industry, she chose instead to create a custom dressmaking business and follow her entrepreneurial calling. Returning to Portland, she opened her business, Katherine Stevenson Couture, and in 1984 became a founding member of the Custom Clothing Guild of Oregon. This caught the attention of the Home Sewing Association, who offered to back a national trade association. Catherine then worked for two years to create the new organization and the Professional Association of Custom Clothiers was launched in 1991. For five years, Catherine taught couture sewing during biannual week-long seminars. In 1997, she was hired by the Art Institute of Portland to teach a special workshop on couture sewing techniques. Well, this quickly led to an adjunct professor position where she developed and taught a series of couture sewing technique classes, along with draping, textile, and advanced sewing classes. Catherine closed her business in 2014 and is now living in Ajijic, Mexico with her husband. Both are artists, so they included studios in the home they built. She now produces a line of clothing called Ajijic Chic, which she sells through annual fashion shows and her studio. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to So and So.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So it's a joy. I have to say it's a joy to be here.
0: It is a joy to have you all the way from Mexico. And I'm going yeah. to continue to try to, to correctly pronounce the, the name of your town. Yeah. Um, you, you say it's the second best climate in the world. And we're going to talk about that later on as, as we enter fall uh, here in the, uh, in the United States. Um, you are sitting pretty in some beautiful climate right now. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to start out about just when and how you learned to sew and who inspired you.
1: Well, you know, I, I am of a generation where most uh, young people, usually girls, started out learning to sew from their mothers or their grandmothers because those skills were passed down, you know, between mm-hmm. generations. It's, it was the norm. So that's where I very began. But when we moved to, from Portland, Oregon, where I was born and raised, to Madison, Wisconsin, my uh, sophomore year in high school, I took a home economics class. And I just took to it like a fish to water. It was mm-hmm. so uh, natural for me. I remember one of my first big projects was a mint green mohair suit. I oh my, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, of course, looking at the quality of construction is <laughs> another, mm-hmm. uh, you know, question, but I was inspired, put it that way. So I took, sure. you know, I continued through high school sewing and loving it. And then at those times, at those, in those years, now I'm dating myself here for sure. Mm hmm. Most of the big universities around the country had well-developed home economics programs that included sewing, mm-hmm. textiles, clo- you know, clothing and, and uh, preparing you for the industry. So Madison had a wonderful program. So I, that's where I went to school mm-hmm. and uh, continued my education there. But I had, I mean, they even had like a textile chemistry lab. Imagine a school having that today.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I've never and we, heard of that before.
1: Yeah, we had a textile chem lab. We had a wonderful uh, textile creation lab where we learned batik and um, all different other. I think we even had weaving. There were some looms in there. I mean, it was really a wonderful education. But as you said, upon graduation, I had by that point decided I was not going to move to Chicago, move to New York, uh, move to maybe, uh, Dallas, uh, you know, to look for a job in the ready to wear industry. It did not interest me at all, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to do that. So, you know, fast forward, a few years later, I'm back in Oregon, uh, and had moved to Portland uh, with my partner, who is still my par- partner. <laughs> We've been together almost 50 years. Uh, and, you know, here you are in a big city, and I still did not want to get a full time job with Columbia Sportswear or Pendleton. Um, Nike didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janssen, Janssen was another big oh, sure. uh, company in Portland. But it just wasn't me. And I got this wonderful job uh, working in a fine fabric store in downtown Portland. And I loved it. And I just loved being around all these beautiful fabrics. And that's when I started a uh, doing custom clothing as well. And I was always home-based. Uh, it was sort of the tradition that custom clothiers came out of. And I worked part-time in the fabric store. It was a source of clients for me to do custom work for. I loved it. And that went on for about four years when the owner decided to sell the store and move back east. So there I was faced with, where am I going to get my clients from? And there was a wonderful woman that would shop at the store. Her name was Kathleen Spike and she and another uh, dressmaker, uh, Trisha Crockett, were just starting to talk to custom clothiers that they knew uh, about potentially forming a guild called the Custom Clothing Guild. And it originally started in Seattle earlier and we heard about it and we said, let's start one in Portland. And that was, believe it or not, Let's see, it was October of 1983. So that's 50 years ago this month, was when we, I got involved in starting the Custom Clothing Guild. Mm-hmm. And by January uh, in, 20, in 84, we formed the organization and we eventually grew to 100, over 150 members. Mm-hmm. And we were a vital, vibrant guild. And that's when, you know, we formed the referral service where your work could be peer juried for quality. We would offer a referral service, put it out there to the public as an opportunity for source for custom dressmakers. And we networked. We had a group buy where we could um, buy supplies at cost and sell at cost. We had monthly meetings where we bought, brought people in to talked to us about various aspects of the business. We attracted a wide variety of uh, professionals and budding professionals. And it was a wonderful organization. And Patty Palmer, you know, of Palmer and Platch, is that a familiar name for you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She was from Portland. And uh, she was very familiar with what we were doing, and through her, she made the connection for us to get together with the Home Sewing Association.
0: Well, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about that actually um, in in a minute. I want to get into a little bit more about the guild and how you built that. But I'm curious. I I want to jump back to your days in Wisconsin. Why did you go to Wisconsin? What took you there? <laughs>
1: It was a long way from Portland. <laughs> it was. But, you know, both my parents uh, were born and raised in Madison. Well, they weren't born there, but they were raised there. And because of World War II, um, my father ended up in the service, and my mother moved out to Portland with her parents uh, because my grandfather could get, uh, you know, sort of a wartime related job out in Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, via my great uncle, his brother, who was a Benedictine priest um, in Portland. So that's how they moved to Portland after the war. My father came there. They ended up staying, having their family. And then their heart was always back in Madison, though. Mm -hmm. So that's why when I was sophomore in college, we moved to Madison.
0: So you, you also alluded to something, and I, and I want to take a step back and, and talk about this, too. You said you were educated in a system that expected their graduates to go into the ready-to-wear industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, why does the system assume this and steer graduates in this direction? What's, what's going on with that?
1: Well, because there are jobs that you are an employee and you get paid for <laughs> Immediately, and um, you know, dressmaking and tailoring um, have always been a kind of a hidden profession, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it. I think I think it's in my genes this sort of entrepreneurial need to be my own creator of my work in the world, and to have the passion to learn the skills to be successful at that. And thank God, I was in a in in a um economic environment where I could afford to do that, And the market out there was still familiar with having clothing custom made and all that has changed now. you know what's
0: what's interesting we'll we'll talk about that in a second. So you learned all of the things you needed to know about sewing and textiles and everything, but to run a business, that had to come from inside of you.
1: Oh, yeah, it did. I guess that's the entrepreneurial side. <laughs> I think
0: so. I
1: think so. Um, it's, it's
0: interesting uh, talking about ready-to-wear. Some of our previous guests have talked about fast fashion. Uh, mm-hmm. There's things uh, now out there in the, in the media that said, um, baby boomers' skills of sewing your own clothes aren't needed anymore. Mm-hmm. and you you see that out there and yet uh the clothing waste or things that that fast fashion is doing as far as manufacturing garments um is becoming much more known and i think people are going back to to sewing their own things now have you mm-hmm. have you seen that
1: oh yes definitely you know the whole the whole reason that i made a business out of making clothing is because I ultimately design for myself and make my own clothing. I always have. That was my motive. I want to, you know, I want to wear what I decide. And, um, but then when you have the skills, then you can, you know, transform that further out into a viable business. i always said, have sewing machine will travel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh. But, but that creative urge is there, and, but our culture doesn't support it anymore, and that's what's so sad. The 17 years that I taught in a design college, I would say at least a third to my students wanted to do what I was doing, but they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Plus, I tell you, the market out there has changed. Younger, the younger people now, all they know about is ready to wear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so it, you know, unless you really specialize in special event bridal, they don't even think about having their ideas custom-made for them via dressmaker. They don't even think about it. So the opportunities are less, because it's not a two-way exchange anymore. And that's what I find so sad. I don't know if you want to talk about my views on fast fashion right now. Maybe we should wait till the end to have me talk further about that
0: yeah let's let's put a, a placeholder in that. Um, they call it fast fashion for a reason um, and and I do want to address that. Um, you were talking before about your custom clothing guild. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to I'm going to share with those joining us today what what this guild did. It was a network with other dressmakers
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was designed to increase skill through targeted sewing classes, creating business opportunities, promoting standards of quality through a peer Portland-based juried referral service and elevate the level of custom clothing to the public. And that, Catherine, is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of unpack this and tell us what it took to get this group going?
1: It didn't take much effort at all. Okay. It was incredible. The The people were women. because I, I don't ever, ever remember uh, uh, having a male member. Because uh, this is, you know, dressmaking is primarily a, woman's business. Um, but people were just heard about us and we were just this vibrant organization and people loved it. And, uh, and because of that, we were able to take that model to a national level mm-hmm. uh, via the Home Sewing Association. So what they did is they provided administrative help for us. So we had a uh, manager, they paid her salary and we started, uh, to talk about it through the networks available back in the mid eighties, which was not the internet. Um, but we got started getting the word out and chapters st- started to form, uh, it's in some of the cities around the country. And then it sort of grew from there. So by, well, I think we launched nationally in 1990. January of 1992. It's funny. I, I remember our first uh, kind of official board meeting in Portland with um, a representative from HSA and we'd had this day long board meeting and we were driving home and on the radio, they announced that the Gulf war had started. Hmm. Yeah. I remember that day.
0: It's a, that's a moment in time.
1: Yeah, it was. Um Anyway, uh, so through the 90s, the organization grew, and I stayed on the board for most of that time, but I had a two-year hiatus where I went off the board. And that's when, working with a committee of women, of well, um, dressmakers um, in Portland, we met for two years and started the process of writing the standards of quality for the industry. and. Well, for the custom clothing industry, I should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a two-year process, and we identified the areas of knowledge needed to be successful in, uh, in the business. And we sent that out to all around the country, to professionals who were in those areas, and they could critique it. So it wasn't just this committee making this decisions. And finally, it was adapted by the end of the nineties by, um, at that point, it was no longer called, well, we were the, um, kind of still freak. We've gone through various name changes. We were the professional association of custom clothiers, uh, at that time. That's what we, when we launched nationally, we changed from guild to what we called pack or professional association mm-hmm. of custom clothiers. Yeah. So those standards were adopted and, you know, shared with our members. By then, the Internet was starting to get going. Um, And so, you know, I I don't know how much detail you want to hear, but um, I continued to stay involved, though, because in 1998, I, I was elected as president of PAC. Uh, And I served in that role for two years and after, and I remember when I took over, I was just starting to use a computer and have email and could stay in touch with the board via uh, the internet. Prior to that, everything was done either through fax or phone calls or the mail. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. pretty amazing that we could get as far along as we did before the internet. I remember at one point, Kathy Spike said to the board, it was probably in 95, she said, you know, maybe any board member we bring on now should uh, be having access to computers and to the internet. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> but, you know. I don't know how we could have done it otherwise now.
0: What I'd love to know is now you have these quality standards. Um, how are they implemented throughout the industry? What, how do they work?
1: Well, they are a uh, pretty well uh, developed list of uh, sewing techniques that if they're of, qual- of meet the quality standard, then when a garment is sewn, they meet all those requirements. So what would a simple instance would be, your stripes match at the side seams. Uh, That's such a simple uh, identification of what a standard would be. Um, The the standards are readily available to the public on the um, ASDP website. And ASDP now is the name for the Association of Sewing and Design Professionals. Mm-hmm. And that is our current and hopefully final name. So if I say ASDP, that's what I'm talking about.
0: So, so that, that association grew out of everything that came before. And now this is the group that monitors and implements um, these, these different standards.
1: Well no this is all voluntary we don't monitor it ah. we don't we don't well we do implement it in our education that we um put out through the organization but we don't monitor individual members it is a voluntary decision to honor these standards in your work but having written those they you know we're just within the membership. They were accessible to the public if they found them. They were accessible to businesses if they found them. We didn't put money out there to advertise it. Um, but then a few years after I was finished being president, I took a break and uh from being involved in the group. But then there was a ASDP member, Linda Stewart, who picked up the ball and because one of our national goals was to have uh, a national uh, certification program for that. If you're certified, that means that you have been tested in the, well, we identified seven modules of expertise needed to be proficient in the custom clothing field. And she picked up the ball and got it rolling to get that going. So I got involved again in that, and it took another gosh, at least three years um, getting that program launched within ASDP. And I think it was two thousand eight or two thousand nine. We officially uh, launched um, the, the uh, what we call the master sewing and design uh, professional. Certification Program, or MSDP. And I have continued to be involved in that since then, and as uh, the president of the oversight board that oversees the um, development of the program. So, our standards that were done, oh, five or six years earlier, became the foundation document for the development of the different modules. So that initial document uh, turned out to be incredibly invaluable for already establishing who we were as far as our quality standards went. And then from there, we built the knowledge base needed in order to be proficient in these uh, skills. So that's where we are today with that.
0: Let's talk about uh your own career, yeah, and it, this this is interesting. You've created both tailored and dressmaker style clothing, um but you said that everything you've created was different as you love the variety and opportunity to always create something new mm-hmm. um and what's important to you is you also develop long term relationships with many of your clients, mm-hmm. so this this is kind of a two parter here. First, would you share any stories you have of some of your creations and how they were unique to the wearer?
1: Well, I think any time a woman has a garment custom made, it is unique to her uh, because she's been creatively involved in the design of the garment. I do not pre-make a design and produce it and then go look for a buyer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I respond to what potential client comes to me and asks if I would make a garment for her. Now she may have very clear idea of what she wants, or she may ask, she may give a broad idea, but I mean, basically it's a symbiotic relationship where she presents the initial request and then I give my input as to how, you know, what's possible here. Mm fabrication, color, design for her body type, appropriateness for the occasion, you know, all of, the, all of those aspects. And that's what dressmakers do, you know. And um, it's a very, uh, oh, some people say it's too luxurious for them. <laughs> they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. But it is more expensive than ready to wear. And that gap has become even more extreme now. As the years have gone by.
0: I'm curious, Catherine, just to give us an idea. How long does it take from start to delivery of a garment for somebody uh, using this process?
1: Well, it depends on what their timeline is and, um, you know, how busy I was. Now, you have to remember, I retired from my custom business in 2014, nine years ago. Mm -hmm. So i'm all I'm speaking all of this from the past, and um but I suppose it would still be the same today because the the amount of time it would take me to make a garment hasn't changed. I mean it's not like you know the computer world has developed something that's gonna make it go faster for me uh mm-hmm. well, maybe it would be for if I had a custom computer program now for a pattern uh that would you know, maybe make it a little bit faster, but, you know, it varied. I think all dressmakers have a price range, um, you know, sort of a we called them ballpark figures. So, you know, for a, for a blouse it's, you know, five to eight hours uh, for a suit, um, depending on the skirt design, you know, it could be up 15 to 20 hours, uh, you know, that sort of, and then based upon, what your price per hour was would determine the cost. So I'd give a, you know, a ballpark price range, but usually I had, you know, half a dozen garments going at once. And I would feel like I was a a juggler and I'd have, you know, one day I'd work a bit on this and then that and get that one ready for a fitting and put that aside until she came. And then, you know, it, 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 it was always a an interplay of time and how far I'd get along with the work. But I, you know, people were not pressuring me unless it was uh, related to a special event. And then, you know, you had a definite deadline.
0: And, and during this process, you developed some long-term relationships with many of your clients. Can you share a story of one of them that was was special?
1: Two immediately come to mind. And uh, mm-hmm. both of them are on my f- facebook pages so i kind of stay you know kind of stay connected to their lives but sure. one one of them was a wonderful woman she was model she was a model in portland and uh, i worked for, with her for over 20 years um, she ended up in a fairly highly high profile social uh, marriage had the need for wonderful cocktail dressy clothes so i was always making wonderful, uh, dresses for her. So she was my more dressmaking client for all those years. I always had something going for her. Mm -hmm. And then I had another wonderful client who was a clinical psychologist, but she loved her clothes, but she was more tailored. Mm -hmm. So I was always, uh, making for her wonderful, uh, more career wear clothing but very individualized and colorful, beautiful buttons. She loved uh, you know, shopping ex- for expensive wools and fabrics, you know, for her professional life. So those are kind of two uh two extremes <laughs> or two sides of what I mm-hmm. of what I would do. But both of them were long term clients. I had others as well. Mm-hmm. Or and but then I had occasionals. You know, maybe once every couple years, they'd want something made. Um, and then I had what I called one-timers, and that was usually special event. Uh, you know, mother of the bride, certainly bridal gowns. Um, but I didn't just do special event. I wanted more variety than that. But I tell you, these days, if I were to go into business again, I would just do special event because that's now the only, pretty much the only way that need that women will would pay for it is if it's bridal related or you know women don't dress up to go in formal gowns now to anything so it's pretty much limited now to bridal
0: now you, you mentioned that you closed your business in 2014 mm-hmm. why did you
1: well uh you know i lived most of my life in oregon and um <laughs> My husband uh, originally is from England, They're both rainy climates with not a lot of sunshine. Although that is changing with global warming now, but, um, he, he really wanted to move somewhere sunny. So he started doing the research. And then we started coming to Mexico for vacations and we eventually made our way here to Ojiji and, uh, we just fell in love with this environment here and the wonderful culture. And, um, it's a little user friendly for expats moving here because it has for, since the forties been a kind of more of an expat community as well, well integrated into the Mexican culture. So we were not fluent Spanish speakers, so it made landing here easier. So that was another factor. But the primary reason was the weather and just to have another adventure in our lives. So in our mid-60s, we sold our house in Portland we'd been living in for 25 years and uh, moved here, aligned ourselves with a Mexican couple who, and we, we are in the process of starting Mexico's first co-housing community. And we were the first ones to build a house here which we love. So that's how we moved here.
0: (laughs) So two questions from, from, from what you said, um, what, tell us about the co-housing community. What, what is that?
1: Well, co-housing is a new concept for Mexico, but it's not for most of Europe, uh, Canada, the United States. It's a very active lifestyle choice, uh, where you live in with a, Basically, a group of like-minded people with shared values, typically around sustainability, healthy lifestyle, and cooperation with your neighbors. And the so co-housers co-manage their project. It's not where someone else, a developer, comes in, builds the houses, sells it to everybody, and then people live isolated from one another. And Relationships may form between neighbors. Here, people come because it's an intentional community to have those relationships. So this type of lifestyle attracted to us when we decided to move here. And um, yeah, so right now we have a a wonderful little villa being built next door to us and a couple moving in. He's originally from Cuernavaca, Mexico. And uh, married an American years ago. They've lived in Albuquerque and they've recently retired. And now they wanted to live in co-housing. So here they are. They just recently joined us.
0: You know, you called it an intentional community. And, and I think that's a great description. Now, both you and your husband are artists. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about your art.
1: Well, my art or his art? <laughs> oh, both. We'd like to know about both. Well, the difference between us is that I guess I first think of myself as a craftswoman, mm-hmm. because i I make a specific product using specific technique, and it has a goal in the end to be worn by either me or a client. Mm-hmm. My husband, uh his whole career was as a landscape painter uh, in oils and his his work he would either sell in galleries which means he would put it out there and it would be open ended as to who would buy it if it would sell but he also worked a lot with uh, interior designers and art brokers for specific projects and when years ago when we were both starting to pursue what our art was i clearly saw that if I were to go into dressmaking, I would for sure, I would not make an item until I had sold it, so to speak. Whereas if you're an artist, mm-hmm. you make the item and then you put it out there mm-hmm. and hopefully it will sell. Well, luckily for him, it would sell, but not on enough of a basis, you know, to raise a child and pay a mortgage and, you know, all those wonderful lifestyle changes, you know. Uh, choices that we had made, so so it was kind of a, a nice balance between the two of them, between the two of us. Uh, he's a wonderful artist. Uh, I call him a renaissance man because besides his his visual painting on canvas, he also is an incredible music person. Where he 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 basically is a disc jockey on the internet now on Spotify. And uh, whatever, whatever the other one is, he has like over 900 playlists that he has developed over the years, compilations of songs, music around a theme. And, uh, so he does, he works on that. So he's always putting music out to the, to the internet out there. And he also is a wonderful photographer, uh, and he, on Instagram, he's daily posting his photographs and he has followers on that. So he's kind of multi-dimensional. So that's Indeed. what he does. <laughs> so um
0: his his work on Spotify is is there a way people can specifically locate that?
1: Yes. Don't ask me what it is at the moment, but we can post it at the end. I'll get that specific information from him if you would like. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm sure you would love it. He has followers all over the world.
0: It's amazing. Well, and and you know that that all of us who are sitting here with you today are saying, I really want to hear this. Yeah. So yes, yes, we absolutely want that. And on top of everything else, he was your IT guy. He helped you yeah. uh,
1: oh, God, <laughs> get yes. ready
0: for this podcast.
1: You know. So it
0: it it sounds like like things in in Mexico are wonderful for the the two of you with with mm-hmm. your life where you are right now. Mm-hmm. And you also have a line of clothing. It's called a hehe chic yeah and you sell it through annual fashion shows your Mm -hmm. studio tell us about this
1: well uh you know a few years after moving here and we built our house and getting settled you know maybe three years four years in well three years into it i was done you know making curtains for the house or covers for the chair the patio chairs whatever and um so I decided to start a small line of I call it easy fit clothing for lakeside living. Oh, nice! So it's 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 easy fit clothing for a warm climate in a in a in a culture here where people are casual. Mm-hmm. So no more silks, you know. No more no more elaborate wedding gowns. <laughs> just doesn't happen here. So, um, I started, I, and I mainly focus on rayons cause I love more drapey fabrics and, uh, yeah. So I just started doing that. Uh, I started with, uh, at a whole a friend's home, a large house. I did a couple of years shows there. And the last few years I've aligned myself with one of the big churches here and we do it as a fundraiser for the, some of their charities. So I give a percentage of my sales uh, to them for them to distribute. Um, This year, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that again or hire a young, savvy social media woman I know uh, who's kind of part of the family here to get me going uh, selling more direct on social media. So I'm kind of starting to explore that too. So we just rejuvenated my website, which has been kind of lying dormant for the last number of years, making sure all the links were active again. And uh, But that's my past work. And I'd love for listeners to go to it so you can see the variety of clothing that dressmakers can produce. And um, But I'm thinking of adding a new section to it where I'll be selling my uh a he-heek sheet clothes directly um online uh well th- locally through social media. Yeah. But then the other thing is, you know, I have these, I have these incredible couture sewing skills that I learned over the years. And before I talk about specifically what that means, the reason I was able to acquire these skills is because of my professional association. Because we always, over the years, have provided wonderful quality education for our members. Classes that you cannot get anywhere other than specialized classes like this. You will not Mm -hmm. get them in the designed colleges. Uh, Certainly, I mean, like even the big ones in New York now, I don't even think they require sewing for their apparel Graduates, all it is is computer work and all they value is the design and not the actual hands-on creation of clothing. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what has made me so, gotten me so sad. But through my affiliation with the association, that is how I really finessed my skills over the years and my passion to learn. And that was my opportunity. So I have these wonderful skills. And so I, this year, um, I was asked to teach at the association's annual education conference, which happens in a few weeks time in Denver, Colorado. And I'm teaching a two day master class on draping, the basics of draping and also a half day class on Uh, textiles. But also for years now, Threads Magazine has been sponsoring a design challenge with our association. And each year they present a theme and you create a garment within that theme and then you submit it. And if it gets selected into the finals, then it is shown uh, at our annual conference. And the a threads jury has decided who was one in their different categories, and they're announced at the fashion show. So, because I was already going to Denver, I thought, well, this year I'm going to enter it. So, I, I did enter a garment. <laughs> but what the point here is that it inspired me to just start making incredibly beautiful. Evening jackets or evening wraps, um, using my couture techniques, my knowledge of fabrics, using gorgeous, beautiful fabric, and just make them and not to sell. I may sell it eventually, but the whole purpose is just for my own creative impulse. And that's a new, that's something new for me.
0: (laughs) So earlier in our conversation, you mentioned fast fashion. And I said, sure, we'll get back to that toward the end of our, our conversation. So yeah. I do want to circle back and keep that promise. Um, your thoughts.
1: Okay. Well, here we go. Um, back in the 90s, I started to, uh, th- well, let me just say this. When, manufac- when clothing manufacturing left the United States, basically, and moved to Asia, at that time, third world com- countries, because of cheap labor, it was just this whoosh of going there because between the cheap fabric of polyester and the cheap labor in, in Asia, that was the rise of what has now become the, one of the most polluting sources of, of polyester. Oil based, whether it's gas or fabric or plastic on the planet. And, um, so I just, I just saw that happening and my heart just broke, you know, uh, and, and what, you know, what could I as a person do to not participate in that, you know, but I saw it, uh, that was the rise of fast fashion because, because of those cost cutting measures. Uh, clothing could just be down priced made it more quote affordable it was a uh, economic environment where clothing was mass produced and huge profits were being made by these companies so you know that's kind of where we are today and i i watched sewing the thing that really got me so sad was that the the value of the skill involved in creating a garment using your hands was devalued down to the point where sewing was no longer taught in the schools. It just it's just slowly become obviated the value of that craft of sewing mm-hmm. and um, of making your clothing. And, uh, you know, food, shelter, clothing, <laughs> it's one of the three basics of life. Sure. And it's been taken away from our cultures because of the high profit margin in fast fashion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, our you know, my daughter's generation, she's now 43. She grew up. All You know, she's grown up in fast fashion. And, uh, and certainly all the generations since then. And they, they know no difference. And, uh, something has to start turning this around. Mm-hmm. And I'm slowly beginning to see that happening. Um, but you know, the culprit here is oil based clothing. That's the culprit. That's one. And the second is the politics of offshoring. Our manufacturing and the effect that it's having on our economy. And the sad thing is people here want to bring manufacturing back to the United States, but nobody knows how to sew. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. the problem. And it's real. It's real. People don't know how, you know, these, maybe I will say that uh, one of the values of having people come, new people come into the United States. Call them refugees, call them whatever. Most likely they did learn to sew in their countries because that, you know, out of necessity, they still teach it. They still do it. So they are a wealth of skilled labor in America. If, um, the dynamics can change where, you know, that can happen. Um, but it's a sad, I, I find it all very, very sad. Uh, the state of clothing production, and mm-hmm. what it's you know it's it's all been brought down to incredibly high profit margins for these manufacturers Sh- what is it Shane or shine zara h and m and dozens of others mm-hmm. and you know people don't know any difference they don't they, just, they don't they don't um.
0: Catherine, we've talked about a lot of things today. Is there any question I didn't ask you that you wish I had?
1: Well, (laughs) There's one more thing. (laughs) Sure. And I don't think I even mentioned this when we talked uh, earlier, but I'm going back to the association because I'm such an advocate for it. Uh, One of our past presidents now, wonderful woman, Bonnie, While she was president, she started a relationship with the Department of Labor to via affiliation with our association. Our professionals who have alterations businesses can apply to take on an apprentice uh, through the program that we wrote in conjunction with the Department of Labor. It's a two-year apprenticeship program, and they come out of it with a certificate of having passed this program. And then they can go from there into skilled alteration specialist jobs. And because of ready-to-wear and, of course, nothing fits, alterations businesses are huge in the United States now, the need for them. And the need for skilled labor. So this is a way to teach through the apprenticeship program uh, new skilled labor going into the workforce in, uh, for alterations businesses. So that's our newest uh program that we are um you know have developed and are pursuing within our membership. You have to be an ASDP member in order to apply, and you also have to be partially certified in master alteration specialist modules to va- validate your skills in order to take on an apprenticeship in the program. Mm-hmm. So we are, and we call that uh, APQ uh, designated where you've partially passed the certification uh, or master alteration specialist so that you can then apply to take on an apprentice. So we're in the process of launching that program within our organization. And we also have a, uh, a tax deductible foundation and, uh, for our members. And, um, so we are now just arranging to start working with them to start soliciting, uh, donations, tax deductible donations for, uh, uh, people to contribute to our nonprofit to help um, ASDP members get qualified alteration specialist businesses to help launch them into taking apprentices into their businesses. Yeah, I hope that all makes sense.
0: It does. And, and hopefully this will help fill that, that skill gap
1: yes. that you talked
0: about. Right. Excellent, Catherine. Yes. This has just been a, a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. Um, yes. If our listeners would like to reach out to you, you mentioned your Facebook page, some different things, uh, your website. What's what's the best way for them to to find you?
1: Well, actually, I don't have a Facebook page, but it would be uh, they can email me directly. You'll have my email. Mm-hmm. Um, you can uh, go on to my website, cscouture.com, and see my past work. And I'd hope in the next few months I'll be able to get up and start showing some current work. <laughs> we'll, we'll look forward to that. And then I'll also send you, I'll also send you the link for my husband's um, uh, music. Excellent. Access to all of his music library. Well, we'll
0: make sure that that's uh, included in the show notes. And for those of you who would like to email, uh, Catherine's uh, email is catherine at cscouture.com. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you. It It was such a joy to talk about all these interests that I have.
0: It was wonderful. And there you have it. Another story about someone just like you someone for whom sewing and quilting is so much more than a hobby it's a way of life and it's a connection to something bigger if you know someone you think has an outstanding story a story that we should share on this podcast please drop me a note to meg at soandsopodcast or complete the form on our website be sure to subscribe to review and rate this podcast on your favorite platform And visit our website, soandsopodcast.com, for more information about today's and all of our guests. That's S-E-W-A-N-D-S-O podcast.com. And finally, I'd like to thank Bernina for making this program possible. I'm Meg Goodman, and I look forward to you joining us next time on So and So.